In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at aspirient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cammie and Sandy. Hi, this is Cammie. Dr. Ido Cohen joins us today on Money Tales. Money was confusing for Ido when he was growing up. His mom and dad had very different cultural orientations and mindsets about money. As a result, there weren't many money discussions happening in the household. It wasn't until Ido traveled to India as a young adult that he started to refine his own views about money. India was different. It's a country full of opposites, where extreme poverty walks next to vast wealth. Ido learned to be in life and enjoy it without letting money feel all-consuming. Hi, this is Sandy. Ido is a psychotherapist. He serves individuals, couples, and groups with a diverse range of challenges, including childhood trauma, inner critic, relational issues, anxiety, and a lack of fulfillment. Ida believes that in the intersection of our psychological, emotional, somatic, and spiritual dimensions, we can develop our relationship with our inner world and create the changes we want to see in our life. Please stick around after the interview for our takeaways from this discussion. Now, on to our conversation with Ido Cohen. Ido Cohen, welcome to Money Tales. Thank you. Thank you so much, Cami and Sandy, for having me. I'm, I'm excited for this conversation. We are too. To kick us off, would you please give us an overview of the journey of your life, focusing on two or three pivotal moments that really make you the person that you are today? Sure. I think I started in the beginning. I'm originally from Israel, so I was born to a Moroccan immigrant's mother and a father who was born in Israel, but child of immigrants himself. His mother was from Bulgaria. Yeah, so I went through the entire Israeli route growing up in Israel to in a very interesting cultural melting pot and then going to the army and doing that. I think it's important as far as this conversation because both my parents came from interesting money backgrounds. My mom came when she was like three years old and all North African immigrants were put in basically metal shacks and were considered like field workers. That's their potential. So money was definitely a very sensitive topic. There wasn't a lot of money. There wasn't opportunities to make money because of the stigma around Sephardic Jews in Israel at the time. We're talking mid-1950s. And that's definitely something that coming from Moroccan culture and from a family where they had a lot of money, it was a very interesting shift for them. My grandma came from a a pretty mid-upper-class family in Morocco. So they were used to having things. And then all of a sudden coming here and going from that to not having anything and also not having the opportunities to like advance financially. So that was a very big shift. And then part of Moroccan culture is 
you show that you have. And even if you don't have, you act as though you have. So <laughs> it was a very interesting negotiation there for her, which obviously stayed with me. And my dad came from pretty opposite mentality. He came from a mentality of money is very, very scarce and extremely important. And he and his family just came to a place where they, at some point, they lost their house and they lived with my uncle, his uncle. And his uncle was like, education is the way out. If you want to have money, if you don't want to re-experience this, you have to be very educated. Not just educated, you have to be very, very educated. So he was like, you basically have to be a doctor. That's your only way out of this cycle. So it was just important for the topic because it was almost like two very opposite mentalities coming together in marriage and then being exposed to that as a child of like, wait, there is one voice saying this and one voice saying that and how does this work together? And we can't talk about money, but at the same time, we, we have money and it's, they both did really well for themselves as they developed. So yeah, I'm sure we will come back to that. But that was definitely something that, as far as money goes, really, really shaped me. I think the first event is when I, after the army, I went to India as far as shaping myself as a person. I dreamt to go to the Southeast Asia for a long time. I knew there was something there that is waiting for me. And it was really a very significant change in my, not just who I've experienced myself to be, but really how I see the world. Moving from really Western culture, coming out of the army from a very rigid, very structured, cruel, educating, and very existential system where I had to deal with who I am as a person. Do I engage in violence? What do I think about this Israeli-Palestinian thousand-year-old conflict? Like, what kind of person do I want to be when I'm with uniform? What kind of person, and how does that match with who I am when I'm without uniform? To a country that is full of spirituality, full of opposites, poverty, people, like extreme poverty, side by side with unimaginable wealth, really unimaginable wealth. And seeing death and life celebrated like side by side, walking in certain places in India and you literally see bodies getting carried to being burned. And it's being carried in prayer and ritual and flowers. Well, coming from a Jewish culture, when there's death, it's the most horrible thing. And everybody's crying and wearing black and it's, full of sorrow and mourning and sadness and also coming there with what would be considered at the time in Indian terms a lot of money for any person in India and slowly realize slowly kind of breaking down my own structures and seeing like I may be rich in money but I am very poor in my relationship in life comparing to them I just saw people who had a lot less than I did and I had the luck of traveling with friends of mine and we all would talk about like, we have more than them, but they seem a lot happier and they seem a lot more able to like, just be in life and enjoy and dance and celebrate and relish in relationships. And they're not worried about money in the same way. Obviously they are, but it's not the same way. It didn't feel as consuming as it felt to us. And I remember there's this story when I was thinking about our conversation, I remember this story of 
being with two friends of mine and we're walking down the street that we walked through a lot in Delhi, which is north central India. And there was this group of kids, beggar kids, that we already kind of knew because we were there for a while. And there was this one little girl, like three years old. And we at some point decided to give only her money because anything, what happens is that there is a gang of kids who beg and basically there's an adult that takes the money at any time. So it's not really for the kids, it's for some adult. And we decided to give her the money. And I don't know what happened, but maybe because she knew us, she waved us off and she signaled to us with her finger like to kneel down, to like bend over to her. And out of her dirty, raggedy shirts, she pulled something. And it was a whole bunch of stickers. Then the stickers, it's Bindu. It's the stickers they put in between their eyebrows. And in her gentle, like, three-year-old hands, she puts one on each one of us. And just the, like what you're, the face you're both making now, that's exactly the face we made. It was, it was such a mind twist. For her, at that point, the money was not a thing. And we thought we were in the position of the givers. And she was the receiver. And she totally switched it on us. We sat in silence for like 30 minutes afterwards in a taxi. And we're like, what was that? How did this little girl like just shatter our whole give, take, money, who has, who has not, our whole paradigm? with this one innocent act, this one innocent act. And so that's that. And then 11 years, this is 10 years after that event, 11 years ago, I moved to San Francisco. And here I am, (laughs) (laughs) living in quite the opposite (laughs) of that experience. And... It's interesting because in Israel, there is such reverence for the American dream and the American way of life. There is, we, we want to be so much like America, like American culture, like a lot of other countries. And coming here and slowly really understanding or feeling what money is actually here, what's the, this flavor of capitalism and how... I listened to your podcast with Rabbi Lender and he was talking about how it's a symbol of self. And I was, I really started feeling, I was like, yeah, the more I studied at California Institute of Integral Studies, which is a very psychological and spiritual school. And even among the most spiritual people that I knew there, money was a thing. Money was there. It did not skip anyone. It either was there by, you know, trying to bypass it. Like, no, it's not important. It's not a thing at all. You have to relinquish it. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You have to pay your rent. <laughs> you got you to gotta eat. <laughs> how, how are you going to do that? You can't go with that to Whole Foods and tell them, like, listen, I'm really hungry, but here's my spiritual belief about money and food. And really going through the, a very ongoing intense conversation with money and obviously being a psychologist and working with people seeing how fragile sensitive shame-ridden the money archetype is people will talk about the most horrible of traumas and will not discuss money 
or will cringe at the thought of really discussing money. And I just saw it over and over and it mesmerized me. It's still mesmerizing. It's sad and it's mesmerizing. Ida, there is so much to cover. Thank you for that overview and the pivotal moments. Your comments about India were really interesting because it reminds me of my own travels when I've gone to different countries and it oftentimes has seemed like the poorest people that I've come across in those countries were always the happiest, the ones filled with laughter. So that's really interesting. But let's go back to your childhood briefly, because you mentioned growing up with two parents who had very different money backgrounds and then being raised in a household where there was money. So what messages were you taking away from that experience? And what conversations, if any, were you having with your family about money as you were growing up? Honestly, for years, it was up until my 20s, I would say it was very confusing. Every time I talked to my mother about money, she would just say, okay, what do you need? Don't worry, we'll make it happen. And I would say, wait, 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 let's talk about it. Is it okay? Is it available? What's going on? Like, Because when you don't get that information, I think as a child, you can feel really guilty or start imagining like, oh, I think my parents have a lot of money. They just don't want to tell me. Or all of a sudden, one day you're like, wait, maybe we don't have a lot of money. Maybe it's all, this is what it is. And they just don't want to say it. So it was very, very confusing. I think not by chance, that generation and gender roles, when my talk about my, with my dad about money, it was always a very hard, it's not your concern, just tell us what you need. And I would be like, okay, but can you tell me? Can you, because I wanted to learn. I wanted to learn. And he was like, don't worry about it. It's not your concern. Don't ask me about money. I don't want to talk about it. Just tell me what you need and I'll tell you if, it's, if we can do it or not. And I think what it left me with is a really angry and I just leaned more towards my mom, which is like, okay, if you don't tell me not to worry, then I won't worry. But at the same time, I got messages since I was 11. It's like, okay, you need to go to work. Like it's summertime, you need to go make money. You need to learn the how. The money doesn't grow on trees, right? That famous statement, that money doesn't grow on trees. So every summer since I was 11, I would go paint my uncle's factory or go work in a store or work in a gift shop or work as a this or a that. Or there was still this don't touch the topic relationship with it. And it felt frustrating. It felt confusing. It was confusing because I was like, why don't you want to talk about it? And when I started learning about their history, I was like, oh, okay. I see now why you don't want to talk about it. Because talking about it means you have to think about what you went through with money. Do you think that's why people don't talk about money? I think it's twofold for me. I think people don't talk about it because most people have some kind of small trauma around money, about their relationship to their parents, how money was negotiated at home. In most families, money is a power thing. It's used to maintain some status of power. Like, I have power over you. If you're not a good kid, you're not going to get allowance. If you're not a good kid, you're not going to get to go to this trip with your friends in the summer. And I think the other is that we live in a culture that makes you think that that's your symbol, that your success is your symbol, that how much money you have is a reflection of who you are. And it's so hard to detach yourself from that collective mentality 
So there's so much shame wrapped up around how much you do have, how much you don't. I remember not that long, about eight years ago, having <laughs> doing a lot of this work around money and talking to my dad about that. And he gave me the same narrative of like, let's not talk about it. Just you want to make this investment? How can I help you? Just to, and I was like, you know, why do we always have to end up at this point? What did he say? He said, do you think anyone taught me? I had to go and find a banker and sit next to him and beg him to teach me and go sit next to him to learn. And I looked at him and I was like, that is incredibly sad. And why would you want me to have to go through the same process if you didn't want to go through it? And I remember my dad's face. It's like something clicked. He's like, oh, he didn't say it, but I could see it. And he's like, you're right, you shouldn't but I don't know how to do it. And it shifted. It shifted something about us now being able to talk about that. So, but here to your question, Sandy, I think that's how that money trauma is transferred. What exactly do you wish you were talking more about with your parents? I wish they told me why their relationship with money is the way it is, what was happening for them that shaped it. So their money story, their money tale. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they both came from very little and did really well. So I would want to know like, yeah, how did you do it? It's easy to see someone's work ethic, but it's, I think, harder to see what fuels the work ethic, what makes them like do it or not just do it because you need to survive, but do it because they feel like they're using their creativity, they're using their God-given gift, they're using, I don't know, something, something that's just more than survival method the survival instinct. I would want to know about that. In Israel, there is a strong money survival story. When my friends, and I talk still to people in my family and my friends in Israel, they're like, and I tell them about entertaining going back, they're like, don't do it. Why would you do it? The money situation here is horrible. It's the first thing everybody says. What do they mean by that? You work five and a half, six days a week, instead of the American four and a half, five days. You pay 50% of your salary in taxes. So by the time you're left, you have like 37 or 40% of your income. It's expensive. And you have to work really, really hard and you don't get paid. We always compare it to the US. If you were doing it in the US, how much would you make? If you were doing it in Europe, how much would you make? And it never adds up. It's always much less. It's always much less. And I think it goes further, right? I think it goes further in Jewish ancestry of being smart, being successful, having money is part of what helped save us through the atrocities. That's the myth. If we didn't have the means, if we didn't have the wisdom, if we didn't have the knowledge, if we didn't have the chutzpah, if we didn't have the like negotiation skills, we would get crushed we get annihilated. So that really on some very deep level still lives in the collective psyche in Israel. And I think in Jews in general, for most Jews, I'm going to speak for all Jews, but for most Jews. So I'm seeing the extremes in your life. And I'm just curious, what's drawing you to these extremes? The way I see them. Do you see them as extremes? And what was going through your mind as you're making these choices? 
I consider myself very lucky because I knew from when I was about 14 or 15 that I wanted to be a psychologist. So for me, it was never a question of what do you want to do? It was where are you going to do it and what kind of psychology? And coming back from India and seeing that there is a physiological, psychological, emotional, and spiritual component to humans and that you can't just treat one. You have to treat all of them. I started looking for, okay, where can I find that? And I had a very interesting story where someone found this school here. And <laughs> interestingly enough, to go study a psycho-spiritual approach, I had to fly halfway across the world, pay a lot of money <laughs> to go <laughs> study how to deconstruct my money story. And... <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, I think it's funny because they are opposites. There is this clash of opposites. But, you know, I come from a psychological background or theoretical background where opposites are, if you know how to work with them, they're complementing. They're not just in friction. They're not just in conflict. And I think that's part of why I love what you are doing with this podcast, because it's infiltrating a conversation around money into people's psyches where we don't want to talk about that. So here's the conflict. And it's through staying on that edge of conflict that something can change, that we can start reevaluating. So for me, it was when I found this school in San Francisco, it was a very clear yes. I was like, this is what I want to learn. This is what I want to do. This is how I see how I want to be of service to people. I just need to figure out the money. <laughs> I'm figuring it out. <laughs> and then, yeah, and going through that journey. And I think if anything, it was India deconstructing all those things inside. Like you said, Sandy, like you travel halfway across the world, you see the happiest people are in some way they have materialistically, they have the least. And it brings up all these questions. I don't think you need to be poor or like have be of low socioeconomic status or be a minimalist to be happy. But I think if you don't dive deep into your relationship with money and materialism, it's going to be a source of anxiety all the time. Anxiety and dread and comparison. And I also think about a lot about the relationship between money and time. How much time do we spend in our life making money? And then how much that pursuit takes away from our free time to do the things we really love with the people we really love in the places we really love. So I think for me, it's, if anything, India and San Francisco are very complementary. I remember reading this quote once, which said something about the deepest meditation is if you meditate in the middle of the city. It's easy to meditate on the top of a mountain. It's easy to meditate in a cave. Easy, quote unquote. But there is something to really bring that union inside is my school is on 10th and mission so this is before the twitter started like headquarters you go and you're in the beginning of the tenderloin we're talking about people smoking crack on the streets we're talking about people in like altered states poverty we open this door you walk in it's like a threshold it's like yoga music and smells of incense <laughs> and people there is a class where people are drumming and a class where people are doing this and i've always wondered i was like this is not coincidental it's not coincidental that this building is in the heart of the shadow of american capitalism 
of world capitalism. Here are all these, these people who are living symbols of what happens when you don't have money, when the collective chooses not to spend money to help you, where we prefer to invest in this, in making people who have money have more money as opposed to like lifting up those who have, for some good reason or another, have been traumatized and then forgotten by the system. And it's money. It's only money that can be the different the thing that would take their life and transform it in 180 degrees. So if India is a symbol and San Francisco is a symbol, they worked really well for me. They made sense for me to bring them together like that. You mentioned something earlier about diving deep into your money story to really understand it. And I'm wondering with your training, if you have tips and tricks for our listeners about how best to do that. I taught doctoral students the last four years and the third article we give them to read is about how to talk about money because when you go to a therapist even on the phone after you tell them why you want to do that the, the second thing is like okay how much does it cost and there is always that moment where it's like well it's this amount of money and how does the person tell it to me? And so we talk to them. This first thing is like they have to understand their own relationship with money. It's valuing your services. It's valuing, which is in a way valuing yourself. Do you own it? Do you feel guilty about it? Do you feel ashamed about it? Do you come from a background where you were said, don't talk about money? It's interesting. Most people who work in healthcare, maybe most. I think I know some people, it's very easy for them to ask for money, but have this thing where they think like, oh, as a healthcare provider, you shouldn't ask for a lot of money or you shouldn't. And most people, it comes from their own trauma around money. So my thing is, first of all, start asking yourself questions. Like, what is my relationship with money? Why do I get stressed when something happens? The classic is when you see a bill in the mail, when you see the envelope, is your body like responding, getting into a stress reaction? Why? You don't even know what's in the envelope. What's that about? So just to really notice your body and how your, your emotions and the stories you have about money. And I think the benefit for that is that if you touch those stories, if you start being curious, you can actually start untangling that and then the anxiety decreases. You can open that letter and it's not going to jolt you into like, oh my God, is this going to be another bill that I have to pay? And then how much would I have to work again? And like, what expense is it going to take from this kid? Or like, what is it like, you know, for those who are like middle class. So I think that, and two is to also wonder about, I think the big thing is when you understand your money tail, you understand also how you compensate for your money tail. Because if you don't know your money tail, you will react to it. And what do I mean? So take myself as an example. So I had a mother who coming from nothing, when she started having things, she was like, we have to celebrate it. Let's spend it. Let's celebrate. And it was my dad who was like, we need to real <laughs> savings. Savings are important. <laughs> <laughs> you need to think long-term. You need to think about the kid's future long-term. You think about yourself long-term. So that's where they were a balancing act for each other. So if you don't know your money tells, if your money tell is unconscious, you will react to it unconsciously. So either you'll spend more than you have, 
that's a classic, or you'll have scarcity, scarcity issues. Every expense, even if it's giving yourself something beautiful, a massage, a trip, a piece of clothing, it will be accompanied with all these calculations in my head. Did I work hard enough for it? Is it okay? Will it be, how would it impact me? That feels so laborious. It doesn't have that joy. It doesn't have that happiness where you can just be like, I'm going to go and go take myself on a vacation because I want to go and see this culture and see this theater piece or just relax in a pool somewhere. I don't know, whatever that is. You don't, it doesn't get to just be that. It has to be accompanied by all these justifications or rationalizations. And I think those are extremes, like two ends of the spectrum. But I think those come because we don't think about money. We don't touch it. So you're not free. You're not free to be with money in a much more easy way. The third thing, and I think that's the most, talk to someone else about money. Find someone safe, a partner, a friend, someone, a podcast, for example. <laughs> and yeah, and even as an exercise, like, yeah, tell me your money story. Let's share with each other. Because what ends up happening, and I've seen this a lot, especially in groups that I run, that all of a sudden people see that their money story is not that unique. That many other people have similar backgrounds, similar parental stories, similar anxieties, and it makes an automatic change. It's like, oh, I'm not uniquely screwed up in this way about money. Like there's <laughs> other people. And oh, wait, we're all impacted by this collective capitalistic society that makes us think that only if I have this amount of money, I'm good and I'm successful and I'm not flawed as a human. Oh, that makes me understand why I feel this way about me. Maybe it's even not about my parents. It's something bigger than that. There is something that happens when you talk to someone else, I think, that when you look at someone like what we're doing right now, we're looking at each other and I'm not getting the response of judgment or criticism or whatever it is that I anticipate when I'm talking about something sensitive that makes me understand like, oh, I can talk and think about this and it's okay. I'm not going to be judged. I'm not going to be criticized. I shouldn't judge or criticize myself. I haven't reached my first million by the age of 32 yet. And I don't match that social standard. It's okay. I really resonate with sharing your money tale. I mean, I'm doing this podcast with Sandy. And as a result, I am sharing my money tale a lot more frequently. This, I'm exercising what I think is a muscle and through this, I'm feeling more comfortable with why I am the way I am. In your mind, is that the reason why we need to share our money tales? Any tales, yes. I was listening to um, this podcast yesterday with this psychologist called Donald Kelchin. And he talks about there's two types of psychologies. There is what he calls dissociative psychology and conflictual psychology. And what he says is, imagine that your psyche yourself is like a big round table and all the parts that are you are sitting at that table. So there is the money part, there is like your romantic part, there is the, the child part, there is the adult part, and, right? And there is this part of you, let's call it your facilitator. There is a CEO 
that's supposed to help all these parts get along. But what happens is that if I don't talk, like what you said, Kim, if I don't talk about my money tail, that part of me is not going to feel welcomed at the table. And if I can't welcome that part at my own table, why would I feel that I can welcome it in someone else's table, that I can show it to someone else? So the moment I get comfortable with that part, I work through my shame, my embarrassment, my vulnerability about my money tail. I think it's a lot easier to share it with someone else. And that adds to my comfort with myself. Now, it doesn't mean that I will share it with Sandy, for example, and I no, will not feel some discomfort or some comparison or something. But at least it gives me the opportunity to then go and say, why was I feeling bad about myself? Well, she said that she makes a million and a half dollars a year and I feel really inadequate. Oh, interesting. Let me look at that. And by that, we heal that part. We help deconstruct those stories. Because that part can then say, like, I don't really care about making a million and a half dollars. That's not a symbol of who I am. Maybe I want to because it would be nice to go on more vacations or have a nicer car. But that doesn't mean that it's if I don't do that, that I'm less of a person. So you start really teasing those apart. Or, you know, this is my personal rant. I think it also can help us. Something that I hear a lot in my work and also from my colleagues, actually, is I think there is just grief about the fact that we live in a world right now where how much money you have really determines who you are or is shaped to make you feel a certain way about yourself. And there is, I think a lot of people are really struggling and they're grieving because they're like, I don't want that to be the way I value myself. But when you live with that message around you all the time, it's not just about how much money you have. It's about what kind of makeup company do you use? What kind of clothes do you wear? Your glasses, your shoes, how many vacations did you do? I remember having this epiphany. I went to Israel one of my trips back about, I think it was like five years ago. And I was sitting with my partner at the time and a bunch of my friends and all the babies and someone's birthday. And it was just this really beautiful, sweet, serene moment. And I felt like I, I was zooming out. And all of a sudden I realized, I was like, oh, in Israel, the top of the pyramid is if you have a family. That's the measurement of success. In America, it's if you're financially successful. But they're not that different because either way, it's just a measurement of how good you are. So here it's family, here it's money, but it's all just symbols of did you make it? Did you make it in life? As though if I cross that off my list, I'm good. I've made it as a person. Now I can relax. So I think coming back here, it was like, oh, that's why I've had this, there is this part of me and part of my clients and part of the people around me who always feel uneasy because we didn't make it. Based on the culture, we're not there yet. We haven't reached that peak yet. So there is the part that doesn't feel comfortable with itself or doesn't feel accepting of itself. So it can't relax. So to think about it in yourself, to deconstruct, to talk about it with someone else, it helps come back. And again, the grief. It's like, I think we need to grieve. We need to grieve and we need to be 
let's look at what happened through the pandemic. How many times have people started speaking up about it's more palpable now what money can do or not do for you? And at the same time, it's also more palpable that you can have a lot of money, but when you're stuck at home and there's nowhere to go, it's the quality of your relationships that matter, not how much money you have. Because that you cannot buy. Tell us about the money relationship with your patients. I was lucky because I had a mentor that she really did a good job of training me and my friends, my cohorts at the time that money is a symbol and money is social currency. It's not just financial currency. I was trained to look at how people give me money. Do they throw it on the table? Do they hand it to me? Do they put it on the sides? When they hand it, what face do you make? And that tells me more about, yeah, you don't think about it. Even think about when you go to the store and if you spend $5,000, when you give your credit card, do you give it freely and like joyfully? Or do you give it with like, okay, right? Versus when you buy a hamburger for $10, it's like, yeah, sure, take it. You know, it's like, it's very easy. So to see that money underneath money, it's actually people. So it actually helps me to learn more about the person to learn more about the person's relationship to money and how they negotiate, navigate money with someone else. So that's one thing. And because eventually we all want to be in relationships and eventually in any relationship, money comes up. doesn't matter if it's a romantic or a friend. If you do something with someone, you go out, there's some expense that's shared, you're negotiating money. And how do you negotiate it? Do you sit there afterwards, you go on a shared trip. Do you remember that this one friend forgot to still pay you those $200 three weeks after? Why? Because it means something to you about that relationship. It's not just about the money. So you learn about yourself. So money is always such a palpable archetype, especially because like what we're saying, it's not talked about. That trip example really really hit me. It's hard not to just internalize all these ideas and realize, oh yeah, I did feel a little bit whatever on that trip when the bills came. Right, it automatically pulls on that, on some relational string inside of us. And it's fascinating. And do people pay on time? Do they forget to pay? Like, what does that mean if they forget? Because we never really forget. It's a lack of prioritization. It's not important enough. Or maybe it's an indicator that they're really overwhelmed in some other area of their life. I'm grateful because in my, what I do, I get, those are all mirrors of how money gets negotiated everywhere else. It's just a lot. It's like under under a magnifying glass. And it's not just about that money. It's like, right? How do people present their occupation? Do they tell me how much money they make? Do they keep it a secret? Are they proud of what they do? Are they comparing themselves? We, all three of us, we live in a very affluent area of California. The symbols of money here speak very loudly. I'm tempted to share, like I think I shared this with you, Sandy, but being exposed to a new Jewish community on Jewish New Year's, just getting to the parking lot, I was like, okay, money speaks very loud here. And it's not a problem. I think people should be proud of their accomplishments. I think people should celebrate it. Money should be used to be celebratory. It should be used for joy. It should be used for happiness. It should be used for 
for things that make you curious. If it's electronics, great. If it's going to India and spending six months in an ashram, fantastic, all the same, as long as it gives you joy. It serves some deeper purpose in some way. I'm so glad you're sharing all this with us, Ido. What's going through my mind actually is something that we talk a lot about on Money Tales, and we also talk about it a lot with clients, which is making sure that your money decisions align with your values. I remember the story of a colleague of mine who started her practice and for some reason or another got very affluent patients. And at some point she, she realized like, I can't have, <laughs> what happened is that she had just a regular car and one of her patients saw her and was like, were you driving that 2000 and something, something car? And she went and bought a BMW the next day. Because she felt it wasn't representative of her brand? It's not aligned with their values. And what would that make them think about me? Because I need to maintain some kind of persona here so I can keep having my right being seen in a certain way. Meaning given that a few months later, she's like, what the hell did I do? (laughs) (laughs) She realized it. But I think it's an extreme story of something that happens to us all the time. But when we don't know your money story or don't want to touch it, you just feel the embarrassment or the jealousy or the shame. You're not curious about it. You just assume that, oh, it's because I need to make more money so I can have that brand of shoes. Like, that's the problem. I feel embarrassed because I'm not doing well enough. As opposed to like, wait, I'm influenced by all these voices and all these perceptions and all these messages. It allows it to fester if you don't give voice to it. So tell us, Ido, how's your relationship with money? What's it like? (laughs) It's friendly and complex. It's friendly in the sense that I'm grateful to have the opportunity to be in spaces where I, even if I didn't want to, I was pushed to think about that and to engage in it because of what I do as a for a living and just because I'm a curious person. And to be in spaces where when I did talk about it and when we talked about it as a group, it was really encouraged and a very welcoming space. So that helped me find and figure out my money tell, like stuff I shared about my parents, how it landed in me, the difference between cultures, having a very rebellious part of me that's like, screw money, screw capitalism, this is bullshit. And this is cause for suffering. This is me, like my teenage 20 post-India years. And then sobering and landing back and be like, actually, (laughs) if you wanna be a full person who actually brings that, like you need to make peace with money. And then you'll see what it looks like for you. And complex for two reasons. One, because I am an immigrant and the financial reality for immigrants is a little different here than it is for citizens. We launch a little later. We have to deal with different tax brackets with all these other stuff that have to relate with immigration. And I think it's complex because living in California in the Bay Area, I am very aware of how money is perceived, how money is used, and the place of money in social interactions. I've heard so many friends of mine were like, if you move to anywhere else that's not New York or LA, you will not feel this. 
move to North Carolina, it will be very different. Move to Denver, it will be very different. Move to so it's complex. I think because of what I do, I'm also really aware of how how much suffering it causes people, and how much again stress, anxiety, depression. A lot of it today is related to finances, to capitalism as a whole, and to finances in particular. I have this inner advocate that's always trying to figure out how can I live, find a better niche for myself within this grand conversation, and then bring that niche into my work, into my environment, into my relationships. And it's hard. So there's days where I'm like, I still go into my rebellious side or like, this is bullshit. This is bullshit. We live in a very sick culture. The economy, like the economic force is really driving people to their edge. It's like this thing that sips under your, your skin and I want to fight it. And then there is days where I'm at peace with it. And I'm like, no, I can see. I find this channel of communication with it where it feels I can see exactly why it's necessary. I can see how capitalism can be used for good. How can my work be used for good? How making money is important if you know how to work with it, if you can channel it for good. And good can be giving my children a good life, giving my partner or something, giving myself a happy life, supporting others, donating, maybe starting something that is promoting good, or even doing like something like this that talks about money and helps people. So there's days, more days like that that I can see how staying in that conversation can actually be a benefit. So complex and friendly. Friendly and complex, that's a great description. It's all about the opposites. <laughs> yeah. It's all about the opposites. Yeah. There's it's a trend. All about, I thought about this before we started because I've heard this really potent quote yesterday by Carl Jung, the psychologist. And he said, we humans are the great danger. The psyche is the great danger. What if something goes wrong in the psyche? And so this demonstrates to us what power the psyche has and how important it is to know something about it. Yet we know so very little. And I love what you're doing because I think if most people knew more about their money tell, how their money tell shapes them, how it shapes their interactions, how it shapes their perception of culture, I think the world would change dramatically, really dramatically change. So thank you. <laughs> it's a great quote. Yeah, it's a little dramatic, but I like it. You know, what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? I want to talk with everybody about it. <laughs> I'm trying, actually, where my mind went to is like, who's the person I have least talked about it with? There I want to go. I think it would probably be actually my brothers and my partner. I do want to tell you that it's interesting you asked that because when I told people I'm doing it, I'm doing this podcast, you know what the common response was? Wow, that's really interesting. Then that's it. (laughs) (laughs) I could feel their money part. It almost was, why? (laughs) (laughs) Actually, someone did ask me, like, why are you doing this? I was like, what do you mean? Money's right up there with death and sex. The shadowy trifecta of, of modern culture. Money, death, and sex. I was like, what do you mean? These are the most juiciest of topics. It was such an opportunity. So 
Yeah, probably my brothers and my partner. We wish you luck with those conversations. And we so appreciate you opening up and talking to us about money and sharing some really insightful tips and guidance. I really liked the visual of the different parts of ourselves and inviting them to the table. So thank you. Thank you so much, Sandy and Cami. This was a pleasure. And I am curious how this conversation is going to move things for myself in there. So that's wonderful. Thank you. Cami, what was your biggest money insight from this conversation with Ido Cohen? He talked a lot about relationships, which isn't surprising given what Ido does. But he talked about the relationship between money and time that I found really compelling and personally challenging. He almost gave us a, a framework to really check in on how much time do we spend making money versus using our time to enjoy the things that matter most to us. We can spend our whole lives just really focused on the numbers column and not the experience column and just keep building, building, building. What really made me happy when Ito brought this up is it felt like it was underscoring why we're on this journey with this podcast. If you're not talking about money, if you're not uncovering what it's for, then you don't know what you need to build. And so I think this thought about knowing the relationship between money and time, being conscious of that really emphasizes you got to have conversations about it because if you are spending too much time just making money and not enjoying what you really prioritize and really think is most valuable in your life, then you've lost sight of what you're doing, what it's all for. I'm glad you honed in on that, Cami. I want to challenge our listeners If you're interested in exploring this for yourself, take a week and think about how you're using your money versus how you're using your time and see if there's any connecting points there that provide any ahas to you. I like that challenge, Sandy. How about you? Kim, you're you're absolutely right. You know, as a relationship guy, and I love the spirituality and the thoughtfulness that he brought to our conversation and that it's clear he brings to his relationships. And I appreciated that he pointed out how money is a component of all of our relationships. We bring our money stories into how we relate to our friends, our family, our spouses or partners. Money is there and we need to be talking about it because if we don't, We can find our money scripts coming in and maybe thwarting our relationships. I particularly like the example he gave of going on vacations with friends and settling in your mind who's paying for what and like, wait, that person owes me money. I'm glad you brought that up, Sandy. I just got back from New York with a couple girlfriends and I observed my money story playing a part of this trip. And I was telling these friends that I can be very cheap with myself, yet I want to be very generous with my friends and others. And I don't think twice. I'll think twice about buying something for me, for instance, but I don't really think twice about spending that money to be with them and be on this trip. And it's so part of my money story, but I've never thought about this before. That's great, Cammie. What did those thoughts bring up for you? It was more an acknowledgement of it as I was saying, 
do I need to buy that skirt from the street vendor? (laughs) Which is the truth. It was really a cute green skirt. It's for me, though, versus I was telling them the story when I lived in New York that it was all about these experiences and going uptown and downtown in one night and spending all this money on taxis. I didn't even think about it. But those were experiences with people I really cared deeply. It wasn't consuming something for me. Were you working hard to pay for all those taxi bills? I sure was. I sure was. And oh, don't judge me, but I wasn't saving much during those three months in New York during my first and second year of business school. No judgment, but I think it, it's a good example of where prioritizations come in. What's important to you? How are you using your money in a way to align to what's most important to you? And it sounds like you were absolutely doing that. So <laughs> good for you, Cami. Thanks, Sandy. The other thing I wanted to bring up from our conversation with Ito that I found to be quite fascinating was how he shared that he was trained to notice how people pay and negotiate with him. And that by observing body language in those situations, he could have a visual cue into the person's relationship with money. And that's not something I'd ever heard of before. And so it's made me very conscious of what I'm conveying with my body language when I'm paying for something. And it's been interesting. There are times when I just hand over my card and just say, here, take it. And there's other times where I kind of think, oh, wait, do I want to be paying for this? (laughs) Kind of slower to move the money over. I thought that was pretty fun and interesting and and something that I'm going to continue to pay attention to in my own life. You have to share what are some of the interesting observations. I will. Kimmy, I appreciate Ito coming on to Money Tales. Thank you, Ito, for spending time with us and sharing your life stories. It was an absolute pleasure and you shared some great insights. And thank you, listeners, for being with us once again for another edition of Money Tales. Feel free to contact us at podcasts at and share your Money Tales with us. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.